This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm talking about what's new, so this is going to be, I'm not going to do a deep dive into intervention or anything like that, um, but we're going to, oh, I need my clicker too, I need my clicker too. So this, this is all saying that I don't actually have any disclosures, um, <laughs> just, but there I am going to discuss a few tools that were developed by colleagues. I'm not connected to those tools, so, okay. So we're going to be talking about a smattering of things to do with AAC. So we're going to look at some assessments, we're going to look at some current technologies, we're going to talk about iDevice accessibility, and then some funding sources as well. Okay, before we get into the stuff, I just want to um, talk about a few myth busters um, that I feel like are really important, so we're starting on the same page. The first thing I want to say, there are no prerequisites for AAC. I'm going to say that again. There are no prerequisites for AAC. No one should have to prove anything to have access to communication. Now, we do need to assess them to find out where to start, but there are no prerequisites, okay? That means it's never too early to start, and I will also say it's never too late to start, because we've talked about some of these folks with adult services who maybe are a little behind the game as far as uh, services for their communication. I also want to point out that bilingual individuals do not need to pick a language for their communication system. Um, we look at, um, we know this with typically developing kids, that we don't make them choose a language at home or at school that they can develop bilingually. And this is also true for individuals with disabilities. We know that their trajectory of uh, growth is similar to their monolingual, monolingual peers with disabilities. Um, and I, I actually have to disagree with Dr. Feldman on this point that AEC does not inter, inter, interfere with speech development, okay? And we do have research that talks about this. Um, and one of the big pieces and the big reasons for AAC is we need, it's not about speech, it's about access to language, right? And we become communicators because we have language. And so if we don't have access to language, we're not going to build that language. And the more language we have, the more speech we can develop. And personally, I can say all the kids I've ever worked with use their voice more after having access to voice output. They did not all become verbal, but they all use their voice more functionally throughout their day. Um, And the other thing I just want to advocate for is get beyond requesting. Nouns are great. Let's give them access to some other stuff, too. And we're going to talk about some tools that will help us do that. All right. Enough of that. Okay. So this is sort of the three areas we're going to cover today. Um, One of the things that I included, and I don't know if it's in the syllabus or if it's um, a link online somewhere, but it's a communication bill of rights. That lists, it's, okay, that lists 15 different things, and I think it goes along with a lot of the advocacy things that we've been talking about today, um, that all of this stuff about AEC just goes back to basic human rights. Right? Um, so I'm not going to cover all those today, but I would take a look at that and share that with some of your colleagues and, um, and clients. Okay. Okay, it's the goal, not the tool. This is my favorite. Okay. So I'm going to talk about a lot of tools. Before I do that, I want to tell you that that is not the most important part of AAC. (laughs) 
Um, so the most important part of AAC, again, is language and communication. And it's about helping individuals become multimodal communicators. We are all multimodal communicators, especially in the technology age, right? We have more and more modes available to us. So we should not expect individuals with disabilities to be any different. Um, and so what we want to look at is what are their peers and their environment doing? What is our client or our patient doing? And how can we help bridge that gap, right? So we're looking at the goal first. What do we want for this person? What does this person want for themselves? How can we as a team build that bridge to that goal, right? Um, and there's, we need to think about multiple environments, um, a variety of communicative functions. Again, not just talking about nouns, but being able to request, comment, tease a sibling, um, give crap to a coworker, right? All of these things are a part of quality of life, right? Okay, now this is such an important point to me that I want to do a little exercise to make sure that if you take nothing else away from this, this you will remember. So, if you can stand, please stand. Two fists in the air, and repeat after me with gusto. It's the goal, not the tool. It's the goal, not the tool. It's the goal, not the tool. All right, sit down. All right. I would prefer you keep listening, but if that's all you take, that's great. Okay, we've done it. All right. <laughs> so now I'm just going to throw a bunch of kernels of information out there. Again, this is sort of a, a, a smorgasbord of information. I'm hoping that some, some of this will pop for you. Some, you'll get something that you want to go home and look into more or that it's a catalyst for a new idea for you. Okay, um, another great place for a lot of information is pra the Practical AAC website. If you don't already know it, make note of it. Um, Carol Zangari is the um, developer of this and she's excellent at curating really good information about AAC. So I highly recommend checking it out. And I want to talk a little bit about a few assessments that I, I find a lot of my colleagues don't know about, so I figure you might not either. Um, one of them is the Communication Sampling Analysis, C CSA. Uh, this was developed by some colleagues of mine at the ACTS practice, where we support um, mostly children, but some adults as well, with AAC and AT needs. And I love this tool because it... Um, it's very helpful for individuals who are more emergent communicators. Um, and we know that standardized measures just don't give us enough information. All they tell us is that, all they show us is what our clients can't do. Um, but we need to know what they can do so we can provide some good intervention. So this really looks at all forms of communication. And it utilizes um, a sampling form where you want to get at least 25 events, an event being an interactive setting, so whatever happens in the environment, whatever the partner does, the observed behaviors of the communi augmented communicator, whatever that is, unaided, aided, facial expressions, body movements, everything. And then looking at what the response to that is. And then later, we go back and we can code the communicative means, so the forms of their communication, 
any kind of form is acceptable. And we can also look at the functions of their communication. So why were they communicating? Were they trying to request something? Were they trying to comment? Were they trying to protest? Can we actually go back a slide? Can I do that? You can do that. I can do that. Thank you. Um, so once you do a live observation and sort of get all your chicken scratch on that sampling form, you can use the online tool to input all that information. It includes, the online tool includes a manual and some tips and some things like that and some samples. And then it's going to print out a nice, um, a nice clean version of that, uh, that report, that, that, um, that sample that you took. So now you also have a nice uh, language sample. So if you want to dig a little deeper into the language sample, you can do that. And then it also gives us a data summary. So it gives us the percentage of sample for each communicative form, and it gives us a percentage of the sample for each communicative function. So we can use that to compare environments. We can use that to compare how they communicate with familiar and unfamiliar partners. We can use that to compare before and after intervention. And there's also a report template. So if you don't love writing reports or you don't have a lot of time, it sort of gives you a template for that as well. I'm going to grab my water. All right. So the communication matrix is another great tool for our more emergent communicators where things aren't as obvious. They're not, we're not getting as much information from other standardized tests. This is sort of, ooh, see, I move around and then I get in trouble. So this is sort of a, a tiny graphic of what that chart looks like. But it's outlining um, things from pre-intentional behavior, so just sort of um, more reactional behavior to the environment, to more intentional communicative behavior, to more specific language use. So it's looking at this whole range, and it's looking at a whole range of functions just like the CSA does. So being able to refuse, to obtain things, to have social interactions, to gain information. And it gives you this nice visual presentation, which also makes it easier to see strengths and gaps. We know these folks we work with have strengths, right? But sometimes we miss them because of the, the challenges, right? So this lets us see the whole picture. And again, we can compare. We can see change over time. Here's also a Spanish version. Um, so it's a very helpful tool for international planning. Another tool that I really like that was developed at the Bridge School is Framing a Future. And I think this has this is great, especially when we're talking about some of our older clients who are moving into the adult world. Um, and this is also, you can find online. There are 65 items in seven different major life areas, ranging from community membership pursuit of lifelong learning, creating healthy relationships, developing a personal sense of spirituality, all of these things. And it asks the individual, what of these things, these items in these different areas are important to you? And then how satisfied are you with that part of your life right now? And then the tool continues to help the team establish priorities based on those answers as well as some potential steps to address this area. Um, and there's, there's some examples of how to modify this for people with different levels of cognitive engagement and physical access. And there's a sense. 
one of the things that I've found very interesting about this, and one of the ways I've enjoyed seeing the tools used, is for folks at the end of their high school career, and this is a nice way to have some challenging conversations with parents. So I've seen this where the student fills it out, the parent fills it out, and the team gets together and compares. So now we have this very tangible way to say, oh, mom, dad, this assumption you've made about what your child wants for their future is a little different from what they're communicating. Let's talk about this together, right? So it's a really nice tool for that. And and I don't feel like that's something you have to wait till it's almost time for transition to do. I think this is a great practice in the whole idea of self-determination of having kids in middle school start doing this assessment and really thinking about what's important to them. Because, hey, let's start teaching them those skills in middle school so that when they get to the end of high school, they're ready to implement some of these things. Okay, so adult services. We all agree that services shouldn't disappear when kids turn 18 or 22, whatever the case may be. And the importance of having these services available to adults Sometimes as initial services, if they didn't have solid services when they were younger. Sometimes as booster shots. Sometimes things change in one person's life. Either their their bodies change, their partners change, their demands change, and they need different types of um, support. Or, ooh, what do you mean? Equipment doesn't last forever? You mean in five years or so, my technology will be obsolete? What? We need to, we need to make sure that people still have access to those services. So regional centers, thankfully and gratefully, will fund evaluations for uh, speech-generating devices and speech-generating device replacements. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit later about sort of the funding for the devices themselves. Um, but yes, I'm just giving an extra plug, sort of preaching to the choir. <laughs> Adult services, still very important. Okay. so. We know it's the goal, not the tool. Let's talk about some of, we know that we're all multimodal communicators, so let's talk about some of these options. Um, when we look at funding uh, in, in the Medi-Cal model, there's different funding codes for different types of devices. So for some of you primary care doctors who are signing the prescriptions for these things, you may or may see, you see these codes, you may or may not know what they mean. Um, but this particular code, uh, is for emergent and supplementary speech generating devices. So this might be a, a early device for someone who's just getting started with their communication, and it might be supplementing. Again, we are talking about multimodal communicators, right? So I might have a client who has a complex speech generating device, but they might have a single message device like this on their tray that helps them gain attention. They might have one somewhere on the side of their chair that says, hey, I need my communication device, right? So I have a client actually who, she has one, we, we've adhered it to the dashboard of their car, and she can remember to hit that when she's getting out of the car to remind her to stay next to the car when she gets out, but she can't remember to stay next to the car when she gets out. But she can remember, she can remember when she sees that button to hit it and sort of herself rather than having her mom have to remember to stay next to the car every time that she opens the door, right? We have lots of uses for these devices. I put these three on the screen because these two in particular have updated recently and I'm very excited about it. 
The GoTalk Go has three or four buttons on it, and you can wear it on your wrist. I love it for things like recess when you're running and you just want to say, hey, can I play? Hey, can I give you a hug if I'm a hugger and we're like working on that, right? Um, so that's really helpful, and they've made it louder. It was great in a room like this, but not great on recess. Now it's louder, so I like it. The talking bricks also louder. They come in a set of three, so you can have all sorts of uses for them. And they have they have a lock on it now. You used to very easily be able to record over your message. Now they fixed that. Very excited about that tool. And then the sequential messaging devices are also very helpful. This is great for some of those easy attention getters, but for someone who needs it to share their home news at school and their school news at home, it's nice to have more than one button where I share all my news and then my conversation's over. Here I can program one side of a conversation so I can say something, have you respond. I hit the button, it says the next thing. I don't have to navigate, you respond. Now I have this back and forth conversation. So I'm a big fan of the sequential messaging device. So then the next code is for our entry-level speech-generating devices. So now we have some more choices, some more features. And what I wanted to point out with these is that even though these are basic devices with static displays, the display doesn't change when you hit the button. It's a paper overlay. But there still are versions of these that you can scan. So if we have someone who needs alternate access, there are still options for them, even with these basic devices, to have them scan through the choices. With our intermediate devices, so much to say here, but what I'm going to narrow it down to for today is that we know, you heard about iPads? Anybody heard about these? Okay. Um, so they're around. Um, they're, they're sort of a thing. Um, but they're not something that Medi-Cal is going to fund for someone because they fund speech-generating devices as durable medical equipment. And durable medical equipment doesn't let you play games and surf the internet. <laughs> it helps you talk. It's a prosthetic device for speech. So they're not going to fund an iPad because an iPad can do so many other things. So vendors are now packaging iPads as communi dedicated communication devices. And there's different ways that's happening. Um, Pranky Romic Company and Saltillo have versions of this um, with their specific communication software. Um, and they have a nice case, it's a little durable, it's got some amplification, because again, iPad's great for a lot of things, but not loud enough in a, a noisy environment. They definitely all need amplification for communication. Then there are other devices, like the QuickTalker Freestyle and the Forbes Pro Slate, where you choose your own communication app and they will load all of that stuff on there, package it up for you. Most, if I wanna say all, but I don't want to misspeak, so I'll say most of these devices are fundable by insurance, and many by Medicaid, but not all by Medi-Cal. So it's important to sort of know that when you start your funding process. Um, and I could do a whole presentation j just on the pros and cons of iPads, um, but I'm not going to. So I'll try to throw in a couple other thoughts as we go along. Then we have our advanced speech learning devices, which tend to be tablet or computer-based. They, um, they have uh, dynamic displays with specific language representation systems on them for communication. Um, and these, most of these are funded by Medi-Cal because they are generally dedicated devices. Now, we move up to a different category when we add um, access options for eye gaze. 
or um, head pointing still goes back in that last category where I might have a dot on my forehead that's picked up by a sensor on the device which moves the cursor around the screen and I can dwell or hit a switch to select. With these, the device is tracking the movement of my eyes to do that. And that costs a little more and so it gets its own category. Um, Toby Dynavox has been, Toby, married Dynavox, but before when it was single, <laughs> it was still sort of the leader in the field when it came to eye gaze technology. And I would say they probably still are, but there's a lot of companies that are coming up with um, some really nice, consistent, functional eye gaze uh, technology for folks. So this is nice because we don't have to have a lot of consistent reliable movements in the body, but we can still have direct access. Direct meaning I am going to go directly to the icon I want to make my selection, whether I'm using my finger, whether I'm using my eyes, whether I'm using my head, I can get directly to it um, as opposed to scanning to that. Okay, so another thing that I wanted to look at within these devices is the voices. So, um, when we first stopped back in the day, there were like two voices and they were hard to understand. Now we have many more voices. Some people still don't love them, um, but we have more choices. I know when I first started, when we still had probably a set of five or 10 voices, um, I went down to the BART platform and I was like, Ralph, I don't think that's the name, but it was like, are, you know what I'm talking about? And I was like, oh, he, I know this voice. It's from the communication device. Now he's telling me my BART train's coming. I feel so comforted by that. Um, so, but now, now we have, there's a lot more, uh, many more options with synthesized uh, speech. And there's one company, this company Vocal ID, which is working on taking um, whatever sounds an, a client can make and finding a donor that has some similar, similar vocal characteristics to create a unique voice for that individual. And there are a number of communication devices that are ready to plop one of these voices in. Um, now, nobody's funding this because this is new and this is expensive, but it's encouraging that it's out there and that we're, we have people in tech companies doing R&D on some of these things for our folks. So let's look at what they're about. Sound. Zach's on it. To seed the personalization process. This is actually Maeve's voice that we're yeah. combine. She has a certain pitch to her voice that is unique to her and it's around 250 hertz. When we combine Maeve's unique sound with recordings from her matched donor. Giving your voice can change lives. We can create a voice that's uniquely Maeve's. This voice sounds like the real me. She has to work so much harder to use words, and she should be able to use words that sound like her. Since it's her with a little bit of me, it will be unique. She can actually say what she wants with her voice. There are millions of people like Maeve who've been relying on uniform voices to communicate. Hi, John. How are you? How do you feel about having a stranger donate a voice for you? I think it's a gift beyond words. Pardon the pun. <laughs> Before ALS, 
I remember how easy it was chatting with Linda. That's what I miss most, just chatting for hours. The worst thing about ALS is the loss of control. Get your voice safe right away. It's an important exercise, but it also puts you in a positive, proactive frame of mind. Right. Okay. Um, so I just want to do a plug for the medically based uh, speech during device evaluation. Um, again, pros and cons to iPads. Pro, very easily accessible. Everybody knows where to go find one. Apps, very easily accessible. Everybody knows to where to go find one. Um, but that also leads to a lot of sort of trial and error and guessing, ooh, we're going to try this app because uh, I saw a thing on TV, or we're going to try this app because this kid at my friend's cousin's school uses it and they say it works, right? So there, have, there were standards put in place for speech-generating device evaluations with the Medicare National Coverage decision in 2001, and it outlines sort of the process for this. Um, which includes an evaluation by a certified SLP with AAC experience. It requires the prescription from the primary care doctor. Um, it requires trial uh, trials of devices, so we don't just pick something out of the air and hope it works. We're actually going to evaluate the client, find out what features they need to be successful, and then we're going to go find the devices that have those features and try those and see if they work like they should on paper, right? Because we all know something sounds great on paper, and then it gets from Amazon or from the store, and we're like, that didn't work out the way I thought. And then we have to decide, is it worth sending it back, or does it just stay in my closet, right? So we don't want communication devices to stay in the closet. We want them to get used. Um, so we want to encourage people, um, and you all are the people to encourage people to um, talk to regional centers and, and so forth and say, hey, how can, can you hook me up with someone who can do an evaluation for me or for my child or for my clients? Um, and make sure that they go through that process so that we're not just guessing. Um, I know something that our practice finds is we, we often get pulled in, in into litigious situations, right? Because that's when someone goes to hire an outside service provider, right? And oftentimes that's because someone said, oh, hey, here's this off-the-shelf technology. We're going to try it and it's not working, right? And so there's frustration, there's tension in the team, there's um, frustration, there's lack of progress. Sometimes it's even harmful for individuals to sort of be um, asked to do something that's, that's not a good fit for them. And so then they'll bring in someone like us to sort of start over with this whole process. And that can be really challenging, right? So um, I just encourage everyone to help people sort of start here. This is not a power play by SLPs. <laughs> this is us trying to guide families, guide individuals to something that works for them. And yes, we're going to do that evaluation, give our professional opinion, but we need to also hear from consumers because I've definitely worked with some young adults I'm thinking of one in particular. She graduated from UC Berkeley, so she knows what she's talking about, but she tends to pick the most challenging access method possible. And I'm like, what? 
why do you want to do it that way? But that works for her. So who am I to say, no, you should do it my way? I can give her options, but she needs to be a decision maker in that process, and I need to honor that. Okay, I could go on and on, but we need to move on. Okay, so funding, we all know it's a little easier with kids. We have some more sources, but there are sources for adults as well. Um, again, regional center is, can be very helpful for funding the avals and the replacement avals. Um, for funding the speech-generating devices themselves, and I'm talking more about the intermediate to advanced level devices, um, many private insurance companies will do that. California Children's Services is the doorway to Medi-Cal funds for qualifying kids. Um, if a kid doesn't qualify for CCS, they can go straight to Medi-Cal. But if they do qualify for CCS, they have to go through CCS to get to Medi-Cal funds. Um, school districts often will use low incidence funds for speech generating devices. Our practice really believes in using that medically based model. That means the device belongs to that family, not to the school district, and it puts less of a burden on the school district. We know they're not really flush with cash either, right? Um, and so we might be asking the school district for, to help out with some of those supplementary devices and some of those things, right? Um, the other thing that I don't think everyone knows about is California Public Utilities Commission's Deaf and Disabled Telecommunications Program has a program that funds speech-generating devices as a funding source of last resort. So if your private insurance says no, if CCS says no, if Medi-Cal says no, you just need to provide proof of that. You still need to have the a vow signed by the SLP, you still need this, the prescription, you need to fill out the paperwork, but they will fund speech-generating devices, assuming that you can prove some need for that individual to use the telephone, and I haven't found anybody who doesn't need to call an abuela or get on the phone with a medical provider, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's a great resource for children and adults. So I highly recommend sort of checking out their process and familiarizing yourself with it. Okay. The other thing I wanted to say about funding is that um, most funding sources, again, this goes back to uh, a speech generating device being a prosthetic device. And so, again, people don't want to fund devices for leisure activities. So the devices that will, can get funded are dedicated or locked into the communication app. So you get one of those devices. It might be on a tablet platform, but it's only going to run that communication app. But if you get that device funded and it comes to you, you can call the vendor up and say, hey, how do I get an unlock code? And for a nominal fee, they will send you a code that will let you unlock that device in order to access the other features of that device. So I have a student who, um, I have a number of students who will copy the information from their message windows and their speech generating devices, flip over to Google Docs app, plug it in there in order to work on their writing or send it to a teacher, et cetera, et cetera, so they can integrate it that way. But we, we can still jump through the hoops that we need to jump through, okay? All right. Okay. So we've remembered that it's the goal, not the tool. And we've talked a little bit about some of our different modes. Let's talk a little bit about access. Um, first, I just want to plug, make a plug for all the PTs and the OTs out there. Anybody? Woo! 
All right. So AAC definitely um, uh, need for collaboration with OTs and PTs in looking at what are the features that we need for our clients. Um, because seating and positioning has a lot to do with access, right? There's seating and positioning to ensure comfort, very important. Seating and positioning to ensure safety and stability, very important. But those things might not exactly line up with promoting and enabling functional skills, right? So if someone's in a position where they're back here, there's not enough stability here to maybe use their head or their arms or whatever part they're going to be using for access, right? So we want to think about how can we provide some of that stability, and our OTs and PTs are going to be great people to collaborate with on that. Okay. Um, so one piece of access is mounting. So if we have equipment, um, sometimes we can lay it on a table, but sometimes we need it to go with us, right? We're always holding a phone, strapped to some sort of technology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a company called Mountain Mover that I really like because their mounts uh, move. <laughs> so a lot of mounts are static and they have like two arms that that will swing over to put it in place and swing out of the way to move it. But the mountain mover devices provide a lot more opportunity. I don't think this one's built in. Can you click on this one? Yeah. So it's just a couple little lever movements. She can move that into place, and then she can put it out of the way if she wants to pull up to a table or something else, right? Um, and you can adjust those. You don't have to have a ton of strength to make that work, which is what I like about this. You do have to have some, but there's a lot of kids who can have more independence with this type of mount. Um, and then it also has lots of options. So here we have someone who's got one mount with sort of three arms coming off of it. So she's got her laptop, um, who I think she's video conferencing with someone. She's got material she's responding into, and then she's got some written things that she's looking at over here. So she can have that all set up for her as a workstation. And those things can change, so she doesn't need all three of those arms all the time. If she's just communicating with her family, she can just have her communication device up and move the other ones out of the way. So there's definitely lots of options to make it easier to transition from leisure to school to work to home. Okay, so we talked about direct access. We're direct, directly accessing with a body part. We're directly accessing with our eyes or our head movements. Um, but we have a lot of folks where that doesn't work and they need to be scanning through, right? So they're either, and there's multiple, uh, scanning's a whole other thing too. Um, accessing that scan, there's lots of options from mechanical switches where when I hit it, when I press it, I feel it move. I hear a click that indicates that I've made a selection. We have membrane switches that don't require a lot of pressure. We have microlite switches up there at the top, with, which also very little pressure. We have the grip, grap, grap, <laughs> grasp switch where we just need to give it a little squeeze. We have things like the candy corn, which is a proximity switch, so you just need to get near the surface of it to activate it. Um, many of these things are corded, and we know that 
iPads don't have switch ports. Dedicated devices always do. iPads don't necessarily. Um, but we have things like the Tapio adapter, which is USB to lightning, so you can plug any of these things into here, into an iPad. We also have Bluetooth switches like the Bluetooth, which obviously connect to your device through Bluetooth. And you can also plug any of these things into that if you need something smaller or located in a different position um, with respect to the client's body. So we've got lots of options when it comes to switches. Um, yes, okay. We also have things like the scatter switch, which can be mounted to eyeglasses in that case, so it'll pick up eye blinks. So it just, you just need the eye blink. String switches, which can attach to anything, toe, whatever, a little um, motion there will We'll move that. Sip and puff, we tend to see um, folks with acquired disabilities using these more often, um, but it's exactly what it sounds like. A sip is one click, a puff is a different click. And the newest thing when it comes to switch alternate access is the neuro node. Um, so this is picking up um, electrical impulses in uh, specific muscles. So it's an EMG-activated switch which, goes, which just goes placed over whatever muscle group that is. Um, and it also comes as a part of what they call the trilogy, which allows the user to use eye gaze, the EMG, or uh, touch and motion sensors. Because we you know throughout the day, um, our acuity for such things changes, right? I'm not terribly a morning person, so I would need the easiest thing possible first thing in the morning. Um, but earlier in the day, an individual might have the most functioning in their body and be able to, to use some of these more direct methods. And maybe later in their day, their body's tired and they need to switch access methods. So something like the Trilogy allows that. So let's just look at a quick sample of, of what this looks like with Control Bionics, and we are the makers of the NeuroNode, which is the world's first wireless wearable EMG communication and control device. So this is the NeuroNode. Um, it is placed anywhere on the body where you have a viable um, muscle group. So this specific placement is um, referenced by me flexing my ring finger. So as you can see on the application, which continuously graphs your EMG signal in real time, every time I move my finger, we get a nice clean peak. So the um, unique thing about this switch is you can actually adjust your switching parameters. So you can adjust which part of that signal you want to be the switch. So if you have someone that only has minimal movement, you can go in here. We're going to zoom in a little bit on the graph. And then we're gonna we don't necessarily need to see all of that. Um, now, obviously, even her small movement is, you're probably thinking, well, that's still a lot bigger movement than my client can make, right? Um, I, I have seen videos of this use with folks where you can't tell by looking at them what part of their, what muscle they're moving, right? So it doesn't have to be, she's doing that for the purposes of the demonstration of this video. But it, it can be a very, very subtle muscle movement as long as it can be consistently activated, the switch can be placed on that area. So I'm really excited to sort of see what happens with this. But I hope it, that you see with sort of all of these options, as well as all of the funding options, there's no reason that anybody 
shouldn't have the technology they need to communicate. There is a funding source available. Sometimes you have to be creative. You do have to play the game. You have to say the things they want to hear in that report. I'm not saying we make things up. We do not make things up. But we say the things that they need to hear to fund, right? And there is a lot of sources online. A lot of the, the vendors have resources on their websites to help walk you through that process. They have staff that will help walk you through that process to make sure that you have all those boxes checked so that you're less likely to get a denial because you've, you've, you've told them what they needed to know to understand your client. So there's no reason, so funding should never be an issue. And access, I don't wanna say it should never be an issue because access can be really complicated. <laughs> That's why we need this, um, this uh, cross-discipline collaboration to figure these things out. But there are lots of things to try so there's, there's always going to be something, right? There's always going to be some way to access communication. It might take a while to get to the number of words that we want to give them access to, but there's always a way to get started, always. Okay. All right. So we heard from her. Thank you, Emily. Okay. Um, the other thing folks are working on is the brain-computer interface. Um, I've definitely heard numerous times, oh, is she, is she activating that with her brain? Is it just, is it typing out what she thinks? No, we're not there yet. <laughs> um, but they're working on it. We're trying to figure out how, if we can get closer, right? So here's one example of um, someone who's working on that. There's no sound right now, it comes in later. I've seen um, individuals, this, this is a sort of later, cleaner version. I've also seen um, a version prior to this where someone had sort of electrodes all over, a sort of a cap with the electrodes, um, and they were looking at a screen with uh, lots of flashes on it, and it was picking up sort of what flash pattern someone was looking at. So again, right now it's still very tied into the visual modality, right? Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we can sort of move to a different place with that um, to create different modes of access. But that's, that's one of those places where there's lots of people in tech who are excited about cracking this code. So it'll be interesting to see how and when that trickles down to our clients. Okay, so iDevices. Again, lots of pros and cons. I have very mixed feelings about iPads. But we... Um, 
there's one thing to use an iPad for communication, but a lot of people have some, one device that they use to communicate, and they might still have an iPad that they use for leisure, that they use for academic apps, et cetera, et cetera. So we're always still thinking about how we can provide access. Um, one of the newer things that's exciting, the iPad Pro, now has the head tracking facial recognition stuff built into it. So you can use your face to move the cursor around the screen and you can either select by, do we have this on here? Yes, you can select by hovering over the item you want, blinking, opening your mouth, moving your eyebrows up, sticking out your tongue, smiling or frowning to select. Now I was a doubter. Um, Saltillo, I went to their, uh, up to them in an exhibit hall once because I knew that they had integrated this with their touch chat app. And I was like, now I remember before when the iPad used camera for access, you could like move your head one way for one click and the other way for another click and it never once worked for me. So I was dubious, but I walked up, it, this is smooth. <laughs> it really is working. So this is great and this is built into the iPad, right? So this is a great place to start if you have someone that can use any of those things. Um, it's not compatible with all apps, but it's definitely a huge sort of jump in access. Um, another thing that not everybody knows about are recipes. Not talking about cooking as much as I love it. I'm talking about access, switch access. And there's a handout um, that I included for that as well as just some more information about iOS recipes. By the way, if you're playing around with an iDevice in scanning mode and you're like, I'm stuck. I can't get out. <laughs> Triple click your home button. I'm just going to throw that out there. It took me a while to figure that out the very first time. Um, okay, so recipes. So in your accessibility menu of your iDevice, in your switch menu, um, you can assign your switch to do other things that you can do on an iPad. So I can tell one of my switches to tap the middle of the screen, swipe left or right, hold at a point, exit the recipe, I'm done with it, or select an item. You can also choose a custom gesture, which I'm pretty excited about. So I made a recipe for scrolling with my Bluetooth switch. I had my white button exit the recipe so I wouldn't be stuck scrolling forever on my iPad. And I have my yellow switch that will give a custom gesture. And when you choose that, it gives you this screen and basically you do what, with your hand, you do whatever you want the switch to do. So if I need to triple click, you know, double click with three fingers, I can do that. If I wanna do a scroll motion, I can record that. I can do a big scroll, I can do a little scroll. But then that way, when I hook my switch up, because my client wants to look for Frisbees on Amazon, I just have to press the switch to scroll on the screen. Right? So these recipes give us a lot of options too when it comes to access. Another nice thing is just integrating with other smart devices, right? So we can use our communication devices to talk to other devices. This is where we're at in the world, right? We're using our technology to talk to each other. So a lot of the language representation systems in their pages have pages now set up specifically for Siri, specifically for uh, Alexa, Google Home. Um, and just like you train those devices to uh, listen for your voice, you can do that same thing with the communication device so that it'll pick up both of those. Um, so that gives some really nice options with folks for independence. Um, 
even just at home, you know, kids being able to come home from school and listen to music that they like, um, to listen to a podcast that you like, to turn on your Google lights when you get home. There's all of those things that we can do with those devices. We can now have our communication devices telling them um, our other devices to do those things. So it gives some nice independence and self-determination to our kids and adults. There's also one, I, I only know of one that I can think of right now, um, app for the Google, or for the Apple Watch that the um, attainment company has put together. It's the GoTalk Wow app, and it'll allow for a series of individual icons and messages on the Apple Watch, but that can be really nice for folks who are ambulatory and need something quick and easy on their watch, either for self-regulating or for communicating. And like I mentioned before, we can also take the information from our message windows and copy and paste that into other applications to give us access to other things as well. Um, you can also, on a lot of them, directly share to Facebook, to text messaging, et cetera, et cetera. And then a lot of these devices also can pair with um, a cell phone. This particular, the Saltillo products can pair with an Android phone. I'm trying to set that, I'm trying to circumnavigate that to use the WhatsApp app for one of my clients to be able to text with family members. Um, but it's nice to be able to share with some of those other social networking opportunities for, again, for our younger folks as well as our adults. Okay, so. I realize that we don't really have time for questions, but I can stay during the break. So if you do have a question for me, I will hang around and would love to hear from you. Thank you so, so, so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.